John 11, please, if you'll turn there. It's our second part in this little mini-series of responding to Jesus' love. John 11 is famous because, before you get there, what's the story in there? Raising of Lazarus. I had a mentor of mine who told me in college that I should take a year and learn the basic content of every chapter in the Bible. (laughs) It was way more than a year. Although I don't think I've ever mastered it at all, it was a hugely helpful thing to be able to know what it is. You ever ever say to yourself, oh, where is that? (laughs) You know, if you take some time to try to just memorize a little bit of all the things that the Bible has and where it's located, it is a great, great discipline. John 11 is more than just the raising of Lazarus. It is the seventh of seven signs in John's gospel. If you want to break the whole book of John down, the gospel down, most commentators say that it can be broken down into two parts, verses one through chapter, verses. Chapters one through 12 is the book of signs, and there are seven of them. They are water turned into wine, the healing of the nobleman's son, the healing of the man at the pool, feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, healing a man born blind, and then ours, which finishes out the list of seven, it is resurrection of Lazarus. But the second half of the book, which this borderlines on and actually introduces, the second half of the book, verse chapters 12 through 21, is called the book of glory. And you'll see why in just a little bit when we get the, they're not so tightly fit that they don't overlap, um, because you could almost say that the greatest sign is not in verses chapters 1 through 12. It's Jesus dying on the cross. That is the greatest sign that God ever gave. And there is certainly glory there. Um, our one, the Lazarus raising of Lazarus, is the climax. All of the seven, the seven signs leading up to are pointing to this one. There is no greater sign in John's gospel that he did than when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, I say all that. Because there's a lot of great theology in John's book. There's a lot of great theology in chapter 11. And we're going to touch on some of it tonight. But I don't want you to miss the story. Because all of this theology permeates a story of love for three people. It's Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now, this text goes out of its way, and we ought to heed it. And take mind in what it says to us, it goes out of its way that these are not just acquaintances of Jesus, not whatsoever. Verse 1, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. Bethany was about two, two and a half miles from Jerusalem. The village of Mary and his, her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now, you just read over that and say, I know that story. But here's what you don't realize is that story hasn't happened yet. (laughs) That happens in chapter 12. So you know what? Why does John put it in here when it doesn't chronologically hasn't happened yet? Because he's building a case. He wants you to know that he knows these three by name. He knows where they live because he stays at their house, Luke chapter 10. He knows them because they're very close to him because the one sister Mary got on her hands and feet and wiped his feet with her hair, put out the ointment, broke the spikenard bottle, which was priceless. I mean, worth thousands of thousands, if not a hundred thousands of dollars today. 
And she let down her hair in public, which normally would have been considered horribly immodest. All of that out of devotion, because we would know this, she treasured Jesus supremely. She did. So he wants us to know that's, that's who he's talking. These aren't just ordinary people or just someone that Jesus is kind of knows a little bit. No, these are his very, very close friends. You'd almost want to say that this is his family and home away from home. Now you come to verse 3 and you're not shocked, are you, anymore? Because it was Mary, it says, verse 2, anointed with oil, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Lazarus comes from, it's this Old Testament Hebrew word, Eleazar. You can see the Azar inside of it. And it's God's, it means God is help. That's what it means. Azar is the Hebrew word for help. But you're going to find that there's an oxymoron, there's something ironic going on in here, and is that they're asking Jesus to help, and it says that he loves them, but it doesn't look like either. Verse 3 says, so the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, first one, underline it, he whom you love is ill. It's the Greek word for sick, or weakness, really, honestly. When Jesus heard it, he said, now this is very hard to figure out because it doesn't look like it's even true if you read the whole chapter. This illness does not lead to death, but he did die. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, this is this little sandwich. It's a sandwich about how much Jesus loves with a little piece in the middle about God being glorified. Now, Jesus, second time, loved Martha and her, and her sister and Lazarus. Verse 36 He's at the tomb. He's crying. Verse 35 is the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. So the Jews said this. After seeing Jesus cry at the tomb, see how he loved him. Now you see, the whole story permeates with that. Jesus, there is no doubt, and this this is our series, isn't it? Jesus loved them. He loved Lazarus. He loved all three of them together. He loved them. There is no question about all of that. It's definitive, it's demonstrative. But here's the question. How will Mary and Martha respond to Jesus' love? I don't say this to be dramatic, but I think you're going to see that this will blow your mind. Um, Jesus loving you is not what you said. And I'm going to try to remember all the ones you said tonight. Because the one that's in this chapter is none of the ones that you said. In fact, I would tell you tonight that I don't think anyone would ever think this way if they thought about what it means to be loved by Jesus. And you might even say, well, if that's how it is, I don't know that I want to be. Martha had already struggled with doubting sometimes about if Jesus really loved the way he should. Remember in Luke chapter 10, you remember the story of Mary and Martha have Jesus over, Lazarus is there, and what is Martha famous for? Working what? Yeah, she's in the kitchen in old King James, cumbered about with much, remember that, cumbered about? She, she's, she's sweating in there, right? She's in the kitchen, she's doing everything. And where is Mary? Yeah, where should she be according to Martha and all cultural traditions? She should be in the kitchen, she's not. But she's at Jesus' feet, which is the position of a disciple. And she's hungry to hear his word. 
So what does Martha say to Jesus? Now, again, not culturally acceptable, but she's fed up with Mary. So she comes in and interrupts what's being talked about. With, would have been all men except Mary, who shouldn't be there. And what does she say? Lord? Yes, that's part of it. What does he say before that? Don't you, don't you care? Don't you care? Tell her to come help me. It's the same exact phrase, exactly. When the disciples were on the sea in Mark 4, and the boat is filling up with water, and they're bailing as fast as they can, what's Jesus doing? Sleeping. You remember when they shake him and say, what? Get up. And they say, what? Don't you, don't you care that we're perishing? Well, see, on a, see, on a, a lower level, she's already indicted Jesus because when he doesn't help her so her life is better and easier and doesn't get to Jesus to do what she wants him to do, then she begins to question in her mind, oh, albeit on that instance, a very small occasion. See, he didn't tell my sister to help me when I really needed it. So maybe he doesn't care. See, he didn't stop the storm from forming and filling up our boat. The disciples make this conclusion. Well, maybe he doesn't care. Well, how about this one? He doesn't show up when Lazarus is sick. If you had been here, Martha and Mary had talked because separately they say the same thing to Jesus when the other one's not there. They had already been talking. They had been talking about this amongst other things, I'm sure. Why didn't he come? We gave him plenty of time. We sent notice. Doesn't he love us? In fact, didn't they put on the letter, it starts out with this. This is about the one you love. They put it in the front of the letter. I mean, what more do you have to do, Jesus? Haven't you stayed at our house? Did I not anoint your feet with oil? Have I not served you in the kitchen and bought you great, great food? And this is what it is? This is how you love us? Have you ever said that? You ever judge Jesus love for you by your circumstances? How about by the job that you didn't get when you really needed it? By the marriage that didn't work that you really prayed about? How about the health issue that didn't get better even though you did everything the doctor had said? What about the, by the debt that you couldn't pay and the money didn't come in? How about by the conflict between you and someone you've been close to for many years that's still to this day never resolved? See, that's the question of John 11, isn't it? The question of John 11 is this, will you trust Jesus supremely when it looks like you cannot? Two things, if you study this in detail, there are two words that form patterns in this text, and they are multiplied all throughout this chapter. The first one is not surprising, and it's five forms of the word death. Death, de dead, die, died, dying. Crazy that it happens that many times in a text like this, seeing that it starts out with Jesus saying, this illness is not unto death. So you'd be surprised. You'd think that would be the only time that death is used in this chapter, but it's not. It's used 11 times 
11 times. Next to it, spattered all throughout, almost at times at the same places, in contrast to that, really, is the word believe, faith, trust. And it comes in three different forms, nine times in the text. And basically, every four verses in this whole chapter, of almost 50 verses or more, actually, there is talk about believing and there's talk about Lazarus dying. Now, be careful. I wrote in my notes. See, be careful because we can think that believing in Jesus, like a lot of false heretics and teachers today on the radio, TV, and otherwise, who preach a health and wealth gospel, and most of the time when we preach against it, it's about the wealth part of it. But I can tell you they call it health and wealth for a reason. Because we can be, if we're not careful, we could believe that part of what it means for Jesus to love me is that he solves all my health issues. I got cancer, but I'm not going to really suffer from it. I have this disease, but it won't be fatal. And I have this, and I'll be out of the hospital before you know it. See, be careful, because if we put Jesus in a place where this is what his love means for us, that I might get sick, but it won't ever be life-threatening, or not certainly at my age. You remember that movie, God's Not Dead? And the atheist professor is in the class, and he's against Christianity, and he's saying all kinds of things about it. And he's got that boy, I think the young guy's name was Aaron, in his class who finally stands up against it. And he, he, he just tries to knock down Christianity at every point. And he finds out later that the reason the guy who started out going to church started out believing the things in the Bible but didn't, found out that here's the reason why. Because when I think when he was 9 or 10 years old, his mother got cancer and he prayed and prayed. And his mom still died. And in the movie he says, I can't believe in a God who wouldn't love my mother enough to save her. Oh, see? It happens. It happens if you're not careful. I had three or four lunches with a guy, I won't mention his name, a few years ago. And I had lunch with him because he wanted me to come and argue with him and prove to him that God truly existed. He was very much into the scientific method. He was intellectual, had a lot of book knowledge, and, and believed in evolution. And so we had lunches together. We back, argued back and forth. It was not you know, bad or anything like that. It was a good conversation. We talked and talked and talked. And it wasn't until the third lunch that we got together that I realized why he didn't believe in God at all. It's because when he was growing up, his 25-year-old brother was killed in a car accident. And then a few years before I met him, his um, son had died in a car accident, both of them at the age of 25. And he said, I cannot believe that God, if he even existed, would ever let this happen to anybody. See, he couldn't handle the fact that God would let those difficulties come into his life. I talked to a woman not long ago, really, maybe just a few years ago, who decided not to come to church anymore and wasn't going to go on believing in God, even though I'd heard her give her testimony of faith more than once. And she said she couldn't because she just got married and when the first year, the marriage was over. A marriage she thought 
that would be the guy that she spent the rest of her life with. And now her life was over. And she looked at me sitting in my office at my house, tears in her eyes. She goes, I can't believe in a God who would ever do that. Joseph, do you remember this animated film, Joseph, the King of Dreams? you remember that? I don't know what animated, I don't think it was Disney. Somebody else put it out. In there is Joseph. You know what happened to him in his life in Genesis. And in this scene, he is in a prison cell all by himself with a little dead branch of some extended root that had got into the prison cell. And after being sold by his brothers, after being framed by Potiphar's wife, after being forgotten by the cupbearer, here he is wasting away in a prison cell. And he starts to sing a song. And the song is titled, You Know Better Than I. Listen to the words. I thought that I was right. I thought I had the answers. I thought I chose the surest road. But that road brought me here. Listen. So I put up a fight and told you how to help me. Now, just when I have given up, the truth is coming clear. You know better than I. See, you know what happens when we don't really, we know that Jesus loves us, but we don't know what it means that he loves us? You know what happens to us? Sometimes, here's what we do. We try to tell him how he should help us. We should try to tell him how he should love us. And we start telling him, this is what I want you to do for me, and this is how I want you to do it for me, and this is when I want you to do it for me. And yet we believe that God is in control, but we don't act like it when it comes to how he should love us. And the issue is that we have not fully come to understand what it means yet for him to love us. Listen to Paul in Romans chapter 8. It is a bracketed text in verses 35 through 39 with the phrase that is almost identical that he says first in a question form, who can separate us from the love of Christ? And then in verse 9, he ends with this, that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But you would be shocked if you didn't know the text very well that what stands between those bracketed parts about God loving you. Let me give you the list of love. (laughs) Can I say it? The list of love Paul writes down. Ready? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, killed all the day long, sheep to be slaughtered, death, life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, anything else in all of creation. What? And that's in a passage about how great God's love is. And he has to, at the end, put a catch-all category, anything else in all of creation. Could you get any more negative? Now, you'd have to say tonight, listen, whether you've ever done it or not, and taken a paper and pen, sat down and written it out, you have to know you have a list. You have a list. And tonight, we shared our list. I kind of tricked you into it a little bit. You shared your list, and all the things on your list were positive, other than the fact of maybe something, a hint about forgiveness. But I did not hear anyone say that I'm so thankful for the love of Christ and how it brings such tragedy and peril and danger and suffering into my life. It is fantastic, Pastor Walker, nor should you have. 
But it isn't ironic that Paul says this, you know what the love of Christ means to me? Listen, not because I never suffer, not because I never go through difficulties or problems or life-threatening situations, but did you forget the little phrase about love in the middle? Nothing shall separate us in the bottom. How should, nothing, who can separate us at the top? But you know what it says in the middle? But we are more than conquerors. What? Wait. Through him who loved us. Oh, see? Love is not your comfort. That's not how you know he loves you. That's not what you should say is the main experience, although he does. You know what it is? Conquering. Not around those bad things. Did you hear what he said? Through them. Through them, he says. So you have a list, don't you? What is your list? Now, we won't ask you out loud to say what it is tonight, but let me ask you about your list. Do you come to the same conclusion about the list in your life that Paul did? Do you know what his conclusion was? All those things, all those awful things that he listed, they are things that God, by his grace through Jesus Christ, because he loves me, conquer. I can conquer all of them. He didn't shy away from them. You know what? I read the New Testament very carefully in the Pauline literature. And I found out that this, that he went through very difficult times and they flogged him rods three different times. He was stoned and left for dead. And there are times in Corinth and other places when he was under great attack and persecution and feared for, he feared for his life. Multiple times he said he was afraid. Not one time did he ever say that he doubted God's love. You will not find a question mark in Paul's writings about don't you care. Shouldn't there have been one? I mean, did not he have a list like nobody else's list? And by the way, the list was so great that that list is multiplied throughout the new... Three times he wrote that list, three of them. And there are things that are different each one, so the list was even greater than any of those. One... Shouldn't there have been a time where he said, God, don't you care? I mean, how many floggings? I won't even describe to you what a flogging meant. Nakedness. He barely had enough clothes to wear to keep himself warm in a cold place. Days without food, constantly in danger. I mean, I could go on and on. Shouldn't he have said once, and how can you do this to me and love me? But he never did. You know why? Because he had something that Mary and Martha did not possess at the time. Because when they were, Paul would be asked, what does it mean for Jesus to love you? Here's what he would say. It would be to have a supreme trust in Jesus that would allow you to see God's greater purpose of his glory in all of your circumstances. See, there is another bracket that happens in this text that I hadn't got to yet on purpose. There's a big swath of verses about believing, trust Jesus supremely. There is a bunch of them about love and how Jesus loved them. But you know what's in there that helps us come to the right conclusions about how we can love, let God love us that way? It's the phrase glory of God. That's why the second half of the book is called the book of glory. Only two times is the exact phrase the glory of God used in John's gospel, and it is both of them in this text. 
Chapter 11 and verse 4 reads this. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for purpose clause. It's for the glory of God. That, ready? So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. I want you to write this down if you have a pen and paper. The very first thing Jesus does, and I want you to try to seek to put this into your life, the very first thing that Jesus does when he hears Lazarus is sick, he puts it in a framework of the glory of God. That's how you do it. That's how you can really understand the full meaning of the love of God and live it out in the worst of circumstances, no matter what is on your list. You have to have the ability to be able to, through Jesus Christ and his love, because you treasure him supremely, you will be able to trust him supremely. And here's what we're trying to learn in this lesson, is that you will be able to see the glory of God in all of your circumstances as an act of love. We'd have to say this in reading the text, wouldn't you? This illness, according to John, is about God's glory and the son of God's glory. Hear me first. Does that blow your mind? It will, wait. Lazarus' illness is put into a relationship of the glory of God first. So his death is not main, the main point. It's God's glory that's the main point. The point of it all is not death, but glory. Do you see it? It's the same thing. Remember when the disciples in chapter 9 said, why has this man been born blind? Who sinned, him or his parents? And what does Jesus say? It's not his sin of his parents or him. It is so that the works of God would be displayed in him. God chose to make him blind. Why? Because he loved him enough to let him be blind so that he could display the glory of God. See, this is what I call a gloried center love of Jesus. So let's go back and put it together. So he loved them, verse 3. He loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the ones that anointed him served him, showed him hospitality. But I can tell you this, read the rest of it. What Jesus does does not feel like or look like love to most every person that you'll meet. And it never will unless they love or treasure Jesus supremely. Ready? This is what it means to be loved by Christ. He knew what the delay would mean, and he did it on purpose. He did not, when he got the message, it says he stayed two more days where he was. He delayed on purpose. You might say this, Jesus chose for Lazarus to die. In fact, so much so that in verse 15 of chapter 11, he says this to the disciples, and I am glad, listen to this, I am glad that we weren't there. I'm glad so that you might see and believe. He knows his sisters are going to watch over the next two days their brother die, perhaps in agony. He knows that they are going to cry tears. 
He knows that they are going to bury him and put him in the ground. He knows all of it. But it says Jesus loved Lazarus. Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary. He loved them, but he didn't show up on time purposely. He chose to let him die purposely, knowing the tears, the funeral, all of it. He did it. So you have to read the text and ask, don't you? I did. How can love allow death? How can it? I think it was love that moved Jesus to let Lazarus die. It was love for Mary and Martha and the disciples and the crowd so they could all be there. You know why? Because he wants all of us, including everyone here, he wants all of us to know this, that the glory of God is the most important thing in the universe. And until you put that as supreme in the affections of your heart, you won't understand anything that happens on your list, ever. Chapter 11, verse 40 is the other one. That's the bracketed part about the glory of God. And he asked them when he says, remove the stone. And she says, oh, no, no, Lord. He's already been dead four days. You know, they don't embalm in Jewish culture to this day. I've been to funeral homes. You have 24 hours to put the person, once they die, in the ground. 24 hours, that's it. Because they don't embalm. They don't believe in it. So they put him in a casket, or in this case, they wrap him up and put him in a cave and put the stone over it. Three days later, stuff begins to wear off, even no matter how much you put all the nice spices on there. And in the fourth day, the belief was that your soul no longer, they believed the first three days after you died that your soul kind of hung around a little bit, but if you waited the fourth day, there was no help. You're gone. Jesus knows all of those things, and he waited, not to the first day. He didn't miss it by a day or two days or three days. He missed it on the fourth day. Why? Purposely. Because his body had started to decay. Quote, unquote, everyone believed his soul was gone. He was not possible for anything to happen. But Jesus says, when they tell him, oh, he smells, he said, did I not say to you that if you would believe, listen, you would see the glory of God. Read John's gospel from the very beginning to the end. You cannot see God's glory and live. You cannot. Why would Jesus say that? Because he is God's glory. You can see God's glory. Why did he let him die? Because all the people that stood there and afterwards, read the story. It says, and many who saw Lazarus raised from the dead, they believed on him. They believed on him, and the glory of God was displayed and changed people's lives. So what is love? Let me give you the final definition. What does it mean to be loved by Jesus? Love is doing what is needed to help people see the glory of God in every circumstance. Let me say it again. Love is doing what is needed to help people see the glory of God in every circumstance. Let me close and show you examples of what I mean. It's not... A happy thing. It's a realistic thing. Three times in John's Gospel, as we close tonight, death and the glory of God are put together. This one is obvious. This is why it's not unto death, he says, verse 4, but for the glory of God. That's Lazarus. The second one is Jesus. In John 20, 12, 28, Jesus is going to Jerusalem and he 
prays and the voice of God from heaven and he talks to God and the people around him thinks thunder has taken place and Jesus says, Father, I have glorified your name and the Father says, and I will glorify it again. And the next three verses are about this, that Jesus is gonna go to Jerusalem and he's gonna die on the cross and be crucified. And it says, and he said, I will be lifted up and this signifies by what death he would die. So it's not just Lazarus, it's Jesus. The very next chapter, Jesus is going to glorify God specifically in being put on a cross and crucified. Peter, at the end of the book, is the third one. Lazarus, Jesus, and Peter. Peter is wondering, oh, see, John's around. What's going to happen to him? He says, what if I, if I have it for him to stay alive or whatever till I come? What is that to you? You follow me. And then he says this, Peter, when you were young, you used to go where you wanted to and dress and clothe yourself. He said, but when you're old, you won't be able to do any of that anymore. And they're going to grab your hands and they're going to put you in place and you won't be able to do anything about it. And foreign tradition, it goes, he was crucified upside down. And it says this, and it, that Jesus was signifying by what death he would glorify God. Now see, would you put that in your love category? Would you think this? Oh, see, here's what Jesus wants you to think tonight. Everything in your life is an act of love to get you to see the glory of God in all of it. Listen, including your death. Now if you look in there, see, Jesus died a certain way. He wasn't executed. He wasn't hung. He wasn't shot. He wasn't stoned. He was crucified. Why? For the glory of God. Peter was not die. He didn't die any. So he was crucified because every detail, every detail, if you can see it, because you have eyes that treasure Jesus supremely, you understand that every detail of every event in your life, including your death, has been designed by God and in one way you could think when Jesus tells Peter at the end, follow me, that the last act of your discipleship with Jesus is that you die like him. Uh, wouldn't it be great if all of us as God people, God's people could be so clear about what it means for God to really love you, that in loving you, he gives you the ability to see his glory in everything. You know how I know it's important? Because read the last epistle that Peter wrote. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, it's been good for me to remind you of these things because I'm going to put off my body soon. And the word is tabernacle. I'm going to pitch my tent. It's time to go home. And he says this, just like our Lord made very clear to me. And you know that was 30 years previous. So since that day on the beach on John 21, when Jesus told him, they're going to do this to you when you get older and they're going to crucify you. And that's how you'll glorify me. For 30 years, he spent his life recognizing that, not fearing it, but living out boldly and taking risks for the glory of God. You know why? Because the love of God was his treasure. It moved him. 30 years it moved him. Oh, by God's grace, let it move us. Let us move us as individuals that we would treasure him supremely Trust him supremely because we know what it means to be loved by Jesus. Let's pray. Ah, Father, to be loved by you. Sometimes it is all those things we said tonight. 
But sometimes it's far different. Far different. All of us have a list tonight, we do, of all the things in our lives that we would say normally, ah, Jesus won't let that happen because he loves me. But what if he lets most of all those things happen to us? What if most of the ways that he loves us are not the positive things that we think? Would we still love him back? Hmm, Peter did. John did. Paul did. Will we? Oh, Father, only when we as a community get together to push each other and help each other and strengthen each other in our faith and encourage each other. Oh, Jesus, you are worthy to be our supreme treasure and our supreme trust. I pray you will help us tonight from the story in John 11 to recognize more and live out by faith more what it means to be loved by Jesus, that in it, Father, as you've asked, you might be glorified. For it's in Jesus' matchless name I pray. Amen. You are dismissed.